Welcome to What's Left to Do. I'm your host, Janelle. We are back. (laughs) Thank you for permitting a brief break to campaign against Chess's recall. I really appreciate it. Now, the last episode before our brief sabbatical was with Joe Thompson, one of the lead Starbucks organizers in the state of California, who's also a student at UC Santa Cruz. This week, we're talking to another former student from UC Santa Cruz, none other than Eric Blanc. What gets Eric going? Labor, of course. (laughs) You may have seen his byline in Jacobin or picked up his book. All of the winding roads of his activism, organizing, writing, and scholarship first start in a proper San Francisco upbringing, naturally. All right, Janelle is back out on the road speaking to yet another writer, so it must mean I'm in New York. Well, who am I with today? (laughs) I am with none other than Eric Blanc, author of Red State Revolt, uh, writer at Substack, professor at Redacted, maybe we'll get there, I don't know. Uh, But this is uh, one of the foremost uh, labor reporters and historians um, that we have on the left today. Uh, Welcome, Eric. How are you? Great. Thanks. I'm really glad to be having this conversation. Of course you are. Uh, just before we started recording, um, we Eric and I were speaking for a little bit, and it turns out you grew up like right down the street from where I live currently. You are a left coast native, is that right? Yeah, I grew up uh, public school in San Francisco, right. and got my organizing sort of uh, initiation in all of the struggles in the Bay Area about 10, 15 years ago. Whoa, okay, all right. Um, what? So what was it like for you growing up in San Francisco in the mission before it was like you know, what we know the mission to be today. What was it like for you? Yeah, I, w- I went to a school called Buena Vista, which was uh, sort of at the end of 24th Street near La Raza Park. And the teachers were really radical. And I, I remember uh, feeling part of a community that, I don't know, I, I've, I've missed in San Francisco, of lefties, and it was very multiracial, very bilingual. Uh, a lot of them have been like former Sandinistas. So that was the kind of like 80s milieu in, in San Francisco. Uh, people fighting for immigrant rights, anti-war, things like that. And yeah, both my parents are lefties. They're both union activists. Mm. And so I grew up in this sort of little bubble uh, in some ways of, of radicals and uh, a lot of sort of connections with Central America and Mexico and yeah, feeling like San Francisco is a very vibrant uh, place, a very vibrant working class community in the mission. And that predated the dot com sort of boom and, and all of the intense gentrification that has happened since. And so I had this like very deep love for San Francisco, mm-hmm. sort of pride of being a public school kid from there that today is much harder to feel. You know, it's, it's saying sure. you're from San Francisco back then had different connotations and I feel a little bit, you know, I, uh, I feel significantly different about it today than sure. I did back then. Okay. Hold on. We're going to, I want to start with your understanding of your parents and then your teachers. When you say that, you know, you grew up 
your parents were lefties. Did you understand them to be that growing up or, or just in retrospect? Yeah. Like, how did you understand your parents, like labor and union activism yeah. and like their politics growing up as a little kid? My parents were pretty smart about not trying to like indoctrinate me or my brother. Mm -hmm. They did, however, bring us to our fair share of protests. Mm -hmm. And so I, I remember growing up going to a lot of anti-war protests, a lot of protests for racial justice, a lot of labor uh, actions as well. And so I definitely knew my parents were lefties. They were socialists. Um, what exactly that meant, I think, was maybe not that clear to me until early high school, late middle school, when I started kind of digging into this stuff more, mm -hmm. started reading Marx and Trotsky and, and but going But who prompted to, that? It was unprompted from them. It was actually, I, ironically, I think the one of the turning points was I had a teacher, I went to Lowell High School, and, and I had a social studies teacher who was um, kind of more of a social democrat. Hmm. And I remember already feeling like he was too moderate for me. And I liked picking, <laughs> I, I remember like picking fights with him, you know, cause- uh, About what? Uh, about the possibility for revolution and- Like capital R, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. You weren't you were just going to Lowell and, and picking fights with the teacher. Like what, 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 what instigated that? Yeah. So I guess I had been reading. Mm -hmm. It was just there was books around. Um, I had gotten involved in activism my freshman year around like freeing Mumia Abu-Jamal. Um, At Lowell? In, in, in San Francisco, there was a lot of okay. protests. It was a big issue and there was a lot of huh. uh, protests at the time. There's some anti-racist uh, uh, struggles. I would just kind of show up to protest. I wasn't organizing, mm -hmm. but you know, in San Francisco at the time, there was a lot of stuff going on. So sure. there, was, there was fight backs around uh, pushing back against the sort of like anti-gang quote unquote ordinances. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to protests I was into punk rock. It was not that. It was not that confusing or strange to feel like you were a radical. I, I, you know, it, it was not like I had to break with my friends or sure. so. It was kind of a seamless transition. Uh -huh. As I mentioned, my elementary school, you know, like we were taught in elementary school that the indigenous peoples were massacred and you know mm. and slaughtered and decimated by the colonizers. So, so, so it didn't. To me, there wasn't a moment where all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, now I'm interested in radical politics. Uh -huh. It was just kind of in the air. And I started, I think, reading Marx and Trotsky and things like that in my freshman year of high school. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I had this teacher, I felt, uh, in hindsight, extremely overconfident mm -hmm. in my politics. And so I liked, <laughs> I liked picking fights with him about, you know, whether social democracy was enough, whether something like a socialist revolution was possible in the United States. And I thought it was kind of fun debating him. And then also at that same time, I more so than the just the reading and the debating. I think the big thing that pushed me decisively to become an organizer was there was a campaign for public power in San Francisco, basically to municipalize PG&E. Uh -huh. uh, was that under Willie Brown or after? This was, yeah, Willie Brown was still around. You know, this was the time when there was big left challenges for the first time to the Democratic Party establishment. Tom Amiano had run for mayor. Mm -hmm. Matt Gonzalez later had run. You know, so that this was the time period where San Francisco had a very vibrant kind of progressive left labor um, milieu. And so I sort of I dove headfirst into this campaign mm -hmm. 
to essentially why what 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 was like i've i've got a i've got a as a teenager be involved in this i think it felt winnable to me um what do you mean by that a lot of social justice issues seemed so daunting Mm -hmm. even at the time that it was hard to feel like me getting involved in this issue will uh potentially turn things around. And so I think because it was a local issue, um, it was essentially a ballot initiative that would have brought uh, the public utility, it would have brought the utilities into a public trust. I think because it was local, it felt like I could see how my participation in the campaign mm-hmm. would potentially make the difference. And it that intuition wasn't wrong. We came really close. Uh-huh. I think we lost 49.6% to Whoa. 50.4 or something like that. And there, huh. was, there, was, there was a lot of allegations that a funny business on their end. So the long and short of it is though, I got a sense of agency in that <laughs> campaign. Mm-hmm. I met a lot of labor people. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of the very few young people on the campaign. It was mostly sure. like left labor people. And so I was like their token young person. Mm-hmm, and, and so sure. they, they liked that. And I remember going, like wheat pasting for, uh, you know, putting posters up uh, for our campaign all around the city mm-hmm. with some sort of like more questionable hippie types uh, <laughs> because I think it was technically illegal. My parents weren't like super happy about that. They were radicals, but they're always kind of straight laced as far as sure, sure, sure. cultural norms and uh, not breaking the law as a minor. Yeah, that's right. Let's, so let's not do that. <laughs> I think they had like mixed feelings about me going out in like the middle of the night posting uh, posters you know, where we shouldn't have been. But the long and short of it is that, cam- that campaign sort of got me hooked in organizing. Because? Because I felt like I could make a difference. And mm. that I think is a really sort of fun and, and, and enjoyable and empowering feeling. Mm-hmm. It, is, it certainly was more fun than just being an angsty <laughs> high school kid, which I also was. Sure, and so sure. I feel that, I think maybe politics gave me a little bit more confidence uh, and it allowed me to not just feel sort of bleak about things in general, mm-hmm. but to feel like, oh yeah, I had a contribution I can make. I, uh, this is a really important issue. And it was just a. It was also very San Francisco. I I I, I love San Francisco, and, and this seemed like a. One of the ways that, I could push back against the changes I was already seeing, um, you know, I, I went I started high school in 1998, and dot com was you know boom was already kind of well underway, and so there was already a very much a sense of like the fate of San Francisco hangs in the balance I used to you re- felt that as a teenager yeah but it was in the air i used to read the bay guardian uh the bay guardian was a, you know a great progressive uh free weekly mm-hmm. and this was like one of also one of their big issues maybe that in hindsight is one of the reasons i got involved in it but yeah there was a sense that you know the future of san francisco is at stake as san francisco is still going to be a place for working class people for people of color for weird sort of <laughs> artist types yeah. or is it going to be for yuppies essentially Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, so I think that felt really close to home to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I dove in and it was fun and it was exciting and I got a lot of meaning from it. Mm-hmm. And I think I haven't quite turned back ever since. That really set a different trajectory for my uh, life. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what did you, did you feel uh, growing up with radical parents and having radical teachers, did you feel like, you know, most people around me in my community that I know 
are also like me or did you feel kind of like a, an outlier like uh we're we're pretty we're we're on the fringe over here you know most of the people you know that my parents have over for dinner are you know kind of boring centrists or did I, like what was your sense of belonging with regard to like kind of how you understood the world how your parents understood the world and your community growing up yeah i think i felt a pretty strong sense of belonging within my sort of san francisco left labor radical mission circles tell you know, me what you mean why why do you say that because it was it was not rare it, it was not rare to have uh parents who were organizers who were socialists it was not rare mm. to go to protests amongst my friends you know so there's just it was normalized i definitely had a sense that this was exceptionally rare for the country as a whole ah, okay. and so this is this is the thing i felt very proud to be San Francisco and so and also you know very proud to be like working class public school San Francisco because there was also a tale of two cities at that time so like being going to public school is a big part of uh you know what it means growing up and my mom's a uh, elementary school public school teacher too so I always had a kind of a strong affinity for the school system and within those you know within those networks I it, it didn't feel strange to me to have these type of politics I didn't feel alienated that being said felt extremely alienated from the United States, ah. uh, far more so than maybe I think subsequently. I remember you can, you can to, just to place the time, I was a junior in high school when September 11th happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was this immediate patriotic uh, propaganda campaign. And, and, and I just felt like, oh, my God, like how 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 can people believe this? You know, B Bush is... Uh, how can people believe what Bush is saying and doing? You know, Bush had been really unpopular, and then all of a sudden his popularity skyrockets. Sure. So I think actually in hindsight, I had a somewhat, at that moment in high school, kind of like a condescending attitude, I think, towards like most Americans. Because in your in your view at the time, most Americans were or I just, did blank. I, thought, I, I think I, this might also be part of the punk rock mindset, which I <laughs> had to get over which I think there's baked in a little bit of a condescending attitude towards like middle America or towards ah. most Americans that they're just sort of like too, like a too, too straight, like the straight. I don't know if they're straight or is it they just like buy the lies that are told to them on ah. TV. So ah. that I think the assumption there was oh. like, how can people not see what's going on? I you see. know, this, um, and especially as they immediately pivot toward the war, uh, in Afghanistan. And I, I started, uh, getting really involved in fighting against that. And that was very unpopular. The anti-war movement uh, around Afghanistan was very unpopular. Yep. We didn't. We had some protests, but it was nothing like what happened with two years later with Iraq. And so I had this kind of sense of alienation from the U.S. that I, but that that was in contrast with my sense of belonging. I think to my sort of corner of San Francisco. I got you. So you felt you felt very much a part of San Francisco, and you felt. Not 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 an outsider there, but contrasting that to the rest of the country is like, yeah, I'm different. And like people, you know, people probably don't have the same experience that I'm having growing up in San Francisco that they might be having in Indianapolis or, you know, middle America. Yeah, somewhere. I think it's sort of like a broad brush dismissal, actually, of a lot of uh, the rest of the country and in, in a way that seems a little bit uh, simplistic in hindsight. Uh huh. But yeah, I was born from experience. I was born from feeling connected and from feeling alienated from everything else. Ah, I see. Hmm. Were you a good student growing up? Hmm. Tell the truth. Ooh, tell yeah. the truth, Eric. Yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting. I wasn't actually that good of a student because I'm such a nerd now. Uh -huh. And 
I think like in elementary school, middle school, I was fine. Mm-hmm. I remember in high school being a relatively bad student. What does that mean? Like I skipped a lot of class. To do what? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> this is a good question. I, I got caught shoplifting with stuff like this. I just had this kind of alienated... Uh, I didn't like Lowell. Put it, that's one way of looking at it. Lowell is this big public school for people who don't know it. It's, it's, uh, and it's, it's one of the... I got into Lowell, which is you know, one of, it's the most academic public school in San Francisco, but I hated it. Mm. I really hated it because they were so focused on testing. Uh-huh. It was this big sort of uh, alienating bureaucracy and and i was an angsty high school kid and so i didn't like that and, and my friends yeah. uh who were cooler went to school of the arts which was oh, soda yeah when they went to soda which was and so they did you know they they did a lot of drugs and, and i thought <laughs> they were cool and they were cool I, I i'm still good friends with them but i i so i didn't like i didn't like the school i was at and i kind of uh rebelled against that so so i I was a bad student in the subjects I really didn't care about. Like, uh-huh. I, I don't know, I got, like, C's in math and science. I was really, like, scraping by. And I think I was always interested in social studies. Uh-huh. I, and so, so I, I definitely remember making an exception. I was always interested. And I, I was better at that because I had some sort of intuition about history and politics. I was, you know, it seemed to me more relevant. The other stuff seemed less relevant. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Like, why should I care? Huh. And so I barely squeaked by... Uh, I mean, I, I always knew I was going to graduate, but it was not a foregone conclusion. I would end up going to like a four-year college. Really? I, no. No. My parents come my, on. No, no, totally. I I remember feeling I did really badly sophomore year, and I remember sort of midway through junior year, either my folks or maybe a counselor said, you know, like if you actually want to go to a four-year college, you have to like pick it up. Yeah, you got to like turn it around, and. I thought I thought I would go to City College if I didn't get in. I wasn't that stressed about it. I, I, no, okay. Yeah, I, City College is great. I love City College, and so I thought a lot of my friends had a similar thing where they're like, "Yeah, you know, I'll go to City. Uh, you could always transfer out afterwards." It just the stakes of higher ed seemed pretty low to me at that time. Mm-hmm. It's like fine if I can get in, great. If not, no <laughs> problem. Um, so I, I just I don't know. I kind of frittered away a lot of uh, potentially good teachers, I think, and. I only became a nerd like once I was in college, but it's certainly not in high school. Did that cause like a rift at home? Like, were you were you beefing with your parents because you were just kind of dragging ass? And yeah, yeah, for sure. It's funny because sometimes when people hear that my parents are lefties, they they assume that that means sort of per. Uh, how can I say that? They assume that they were like lax on authority generally. Uh. Which was definitely like not the <laughs> case with my folks, particularly my mom. But and right, she was right. My dad as well. Like they, it also has to do. With, you know, they they were Marxists and labor organizers, and 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 so very much sort of rejected politically the kind of hippie dippy uh, milieu of San Francisco. Like that wasn't their politics of you know just go smoke weed. You know, there's this there was some rigor to their. I don't think it was rigor. I think their their experience was that. The people who grew up in families in which parents would just let anything happen mm-hmm. and, you know, let their kids do drugs and all of this type of thing. I think their view was this was like a very middle class sort of privileged ah. uh, type uh, experience and that they, you know, they certainly like weren't trying to bring me up huh. with those kind of values. I, I think huh. my, they they wanted me to you know, take, 
take things more seriously. Sure. And uh, they wanted me to have a good education and all of that stuff. So, th so they they were pretty strict. I think my brother, who was a little bit younger than me, got a little bit easier. Yeah. But I remember getting all sorts of fights with them about just like going out at night mm -hmm. or uh, you know kind of like basic high school stuff. But they were yeah they were relatively strict. Certainly by San Francisco standards, they were pretty strict. <laughs> but by like middle American standards, they were probably a, a little lax. Yeah, yeah, yeah perhaps. Mean, but yeah. but they had this yeah they they had that kind of vibe and we so we clashed on some of that stuff huh do you so you said your mother was an educator and she she was a union activist at, as an educator what what was your father's profession yeah my dad uh is a labor activist he's also a translator he, he's from mexico and so he did oh, a lot of translation uh and he also worked as an editor for like a left labor uh oh, newspaper nice. huh. and so yeah, that, that's that was the that was the family I grew up into. Uh -huh. Did you so did you have an understand? Did you have an understanding of like class or growing up and like what your class status was? Yeah, I remember being obsessed with this by like junior senior year when I was getting polit. So I was getting politicized, uh -huh. and so I was still a bad student, although I was getting a little bit better. But I remember like feeling my my first, you know, so, so my first activism that I got involved with was through this public power campaign, which was led by unions. And a lot of my formative experiences, even in middle school, I think that put me on a trajectory to getting more involved were going to picket lines. I uh -huh. remember remember going to a uh, picket line for the Liverpool dock workers who had had a huh. strike um, in the late 90s. And I went with my dad to the East Bay. We went out to the ports and it was like all day. I think we, I, I think I had to miss school that day. It was kind of fun. Oh, nice. Uh, they, so they made exceptions now and then if it was for like a picket line. Yeah, and and yeah, it was yeah. it, it was this like successful picket line that stopped cargo from being uh, loaded, scab cargo from being loaded in San Francisco. Huh. So I just had this like very uh, deep personal um, sort of connection to the labor movement because both my parents were labor activists and, and, and sort of just like going to these types of actions. And yeah, and I, I grew up thinking myself as working class. Uh, what did that mean to you growing up? I don't know. I, I remember reading a book that I really liked uh, called by Michael Zweig called The Working Class, like America's Greatest Secret, The Hidden Working Class Majority, I think something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think, I, I'm not sure I was that rigorous about it. I, I think that my conceptual working class was basically if you have to sell your labor and you're mm -hmm. not owning something, mm -hmm. uh, you don't have that much power at work then you are uh, working class. And certainly I thought of teachers as working class. You know, that was my mom's experience. And uh, and I also was working throughout high school. I worked all four years selling ice cream at the baseball stadium. Really? I, was a bit, I mean, part of this was I needed money and part of it was I also loved baseball. And, uh -huh. and, and, and this was another aspect of the gentrification of San Francisco is I grew up going to Candlestick Park. So baseball uh -huh. was like, this was a big part of my upbringing. And this also has to do with like class dynamics in San Francisco. I remember... You know, going to games and the Giants weren't very good, but it was but it was like <laughs> Candlestick Park. Going going to Candlestick Park, like, was a very different experience. Much more working class, much more scruffy uh -huh. than going to Pac Bell, the new stadium they had. The stadium came in just when I started high school, and the prices were way higher. It was like clearly meant to attract uh, a lot of tech money, yep. you know, in tech. and tech. And so we couldn't, like, I couldn't afford to go as many games as I used to. And I wanted to keep uh, on seeing the Giants. So, so me and my buddies, uh, all got jobs selling ice cream. So Ben and Jerry's ice cream huh. at the, at the stadium throughout, you know, all four years. And that was great. And, and so that was, you know, so that I remember thinking 
when working there, it's like, oh yeah, what is the class structure of the stadium? And it'd be like, okay, well, clearly I'm a. You worker. were thinking that as a teenager. Yeah, I was reading this stuff. I was getting <laughs> radicalized. Yeah, yeah I, I, you know, this is maybe more by junior, senior year, not uh -huh. at first. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, and it, well, you know, because in, in some ways it sucks. It's just like you get treated with, you know, you have no autonomy, mm -hmm. kind of get, um, you know, all of the things that just working entails. But it was exacerbated by walking around in like a Ben and Jerry's tie dye shirt <laughs> and having people, you know, you know, like sort of treat you, uh, treat you. Uh, the nicest way I could say this is uh, very condescendingly most of the time. Of course. You know, and it's especially because this tended to be, I was working uh -huh. at this more yuppie stadium. I remember having to sell them ice cream, but like really resenting them because I was like, these aren't even real baseball fans. Like they probably <laughs> got these tickets comped. Yeah. Uh, from like whatever. They don't believe for this team like I do. Yeah, they're like here for the, they're here for the like scene. And I remember it. So, so, I, so I definitely had this confluence in my head of class and baseball mm -hmm. uh and oh, interesting and uh that that meshed with my experience just like the people i knew who liked baseball and sports i was in sports in san francisco mm -hmm. uh tended to be of you know different different occupational backgrounds i didn't think about it that way but just like they live in different neighborhoods yeah i i just knew the people who were like real giants fans like that went to public school mm -hmm. that was just like a different that was that was my crew and then there was these other sort of like posers and i, I didn't like them mm -hmm. i'm not sure it was that much more well developed than that <laughs> but it started me thinking and so i did have like a lot of experience working mm -hmm. and, and being able to reflect on the sort of indignities in, uh, of work. And it was not actually that bad of a job. It was cool. I got to see a lot of baseball. And so I, I, I liked but, but what, it. It was cool, but like, what, what is, I'm, cause I'm sure you have one. Do you have, do you have a memory of like the most infuriating, humiliating things ever happen to you while you were working there that, that further ensconced that kind of, uh, that schematic of class and baseball? I mean, I think the, the thing that immediately pops to my mind was, Actually, something happened to my little brother, who, who I also got a job working there. Uh -huh. And it was the playoffs. I guess it must have been, maybe it's 2000. Mm -hmm. And he was like two minutes late to work. Mm -hmm. And he was really excited about working because it was the only way we could see the game, you know. And because he was maybe just like one minute late, they didn't even let him in. They didn't, our manager arbitrarily went down and just said, I'm not going to let you work. Really? Yeah, even though they could have used him, even though they, yeah. uh, he was, it was just sort of like we had this dick manager, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, who just like had an ego trip. And so th that would play out in all sorts of weird ways towards us. But this was like this like really sort of just like cruel to be cruel mm -hmm. uh, move on his part. Mm -hmm. People were late. It's like not a big thing. Yeah, yeah uh, but he wanted to make an example out of it. And like make an example. And I remember I think my brother crying oh, and being no. really sad, you know, because it's sort of humiliating. And yeah. then be... You really didn't want to see the game. Sure, sure. I just remember feeling like, oh, this is a shitty, this is a shitty circumstance. How would your family and or community have described you like as a, as a zero to 18, like as a young youngster? Like my personality? Anything. Yeah. Your personality, the way you showed up in the world, yeah. like that Eric, he, he sure is mouthy or he has like this rain man ability to recall baseball stats and that's it. Like what? That's funny. I think my parents thought I was kind of shy. Really? Why? Yeah, which is, which is, well, I was kind of quiet. I was like, a, I, until I got involved in organizing, I, I was pretty introverted. Not that strongly. I had my friends, but I was not, um, 
I was not like a super popular kid. I was kind of like lanky, had acne, you know. Uh, so I, I it, it's just true, you know. So it's like I, I was kind of like an angsty. But that was a like, teenager. Huh. But like as a young, oh, like as a young zero kid. to ten, they wouldn't oh, have. Just, they, I mean, zero to ten, I was just like a sweet kid who liked sports. I think zero to twelve, my life basically was mm-hmm. baseball. Okay, you were that I was, kid. I was yeah, and so I was, and I was a good baseball player. Mm-hmm. And but I was kind of quiet. I still like reading mm-hmm. like sci-fi and fantasy books. I don't know. I think my parents. I was a good kid. I, they, how well, how would your brother describe you? Were you like hell on wheels? Were you? Did uh, you torture funny. him? I think I was mean to him. I think um, it's funny because now we're best friends. I I love him and we're really, really close. Mm -hmm. You know, he was three years younger than me. So I just found he was like my annoying little brother. So you guys want to tag around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I just perpetually wanted to get rid of him. And so we would like (laughs) tease him and, you know, we might be good friends. We would would, like mess with him to see if we could get him to go away. I just found he was a nuisance. So he would have thought... (laughs) that I was really cool. He was like, yeah, my cool older brother. Uh-huh. So I, sometimes I'd give him music, things like that. Yeah. Or he thought I was really cool. Uh-huh. Uh, but he also probably thought I was mean for not letting him hang out more. <laughs> uh-huh. It was not until we got older that we sort of bridged all of those sure. gaps. Okay. But then, to, but so 12 to 18, you were the, you were a, a shy, middle school. Middle school, kid? I was really into punk and my band. Okay. I was also in a punk band in oh, high school. Oh, you had a band. I was in a band. So that was like a big part of, yeah, that's why, that's why I don't want to overstate my extent of my uh, <laughs> politics in, in high school. It's not that they're contradictory, but a lot of my energy went into this band. Sure. Um, What'd you play? I played guitar. Okay. Yeah, right. sort of like a rock and roll Ramonesy type punk band. Okay. Um, and and again, there's like there was kind of like a class divide or public school private school divide, and the punk scene was like very real in San Francisco. Oh yeah, the 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 private school kids ironically were much cooler than we were. Like they had How? all these like they had all these like obscure records, oh, and okay. they played a, they tended to play like more. Uh, they played different types of punk that were cooler at the time. Huh. We were just kind of like dorky <laughs> and like the Ramones. And and so the two scenes were pretty distinct. I remember there was a lot of sort of like high school gossip and bad vibes between the public school scene uh-huh. and the private school punk scene. Uh-huh. And so that really was my milieu. I, don't know, I was kind of angsty and uh, I think I, 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 I was, I don't even know. It's very hard for me to remember my state of mind, but just like looking at what I did, I must have been relatively... Uh, not per se happy all of the time. Huh. You know, just I I, to me, it was normal. I was not that bad, but yeah, you were a teenager. Like, just like a teenager, it was just, you know. And that was that was sort of socially acceptable to be a little bit angsty. And uh, but the point there, I think, but maybe what's relevant is politics. Kind of gave me more self assurance, and it gave me uh. a feeling of not just sort of like oh, this everything sucks, but <laughs> uh, this is this is something. Uh, sort of exciting and meaningful through which I can change the world. And, you know, there's always kind of a reciprocal thing about wanting to change the world and getting a sense of personal agency and meaning. And, and so that certainly by the end of high school, I was more focused on that, I think, than like baseball or the band. Ah, uh, okay. So at the end of high school, how would you, how, how would a senior year high school, Eric, after graduation, how would he have described how he understood the world? I mean, by then I was already like a socialist. I was a Marxist, kind of in like the Trotskyist tradition. That was the. F- but tell me what you mean. Tell me what you would have meant by that at that. By time. that. Yeah. I mean, I think that meant for me that 
capitalism was the root of the major social problems mm -hmm. in the world, that the main force to change that was the organized working class, mm -hmm. and that you wouldn't be able to just sort of get rid of capitalism through accumulated reforms. You would eventually have to have you know, some sort of revolution approximating in some way the Russian Revolution mm -hmm. of 1917, and you needed to build a like a revolutionary organization, kind of like the Bolsheviks, mm -hmm. to uh, help prepare for that revolutionary crisis so that it could turn out uh, good for the workers rather than uh, miss the opportunity. So I, basically by the end of high school and beginning of college, I was just kind of starting to identify with sort of Marxism and Trotskyism. So I had kind of like a loose sense of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had been reading this stuff uh, throughout high school and I, I was getting more deep into it. Mm. Okay. So with, uh, not, that, not that these two necessarily went together, but you had this very clear, um, uh, you had a very clear view of your own politics and what, and what you, how, uh, and a view of how the future should develop. Um, and on whose terms it should develop. But did that connect at all to like what you were going out into the world to go study after high school? Like what was like what was your what was your thought going uh, going to college after well, after school? Like was there something you were supposed to be? Like were your parents did they want you to be blank? Did you know that you wanted to be blank? What was it? What was the plan? Yeah, I'm not sure I had it that well thought out. I I think by the end of high school I was already had it pretty clear in my head that I wanted to spend as much possible time and energy being a revolutionary, like being a socialist and like but being what did an organizer. That, what did that mean? I meant doing you? things like what I had been doing, getting involved in uh, campaigns. I always had a sense that like day-to-day -day struggles were really important. So I don't think I was ever sort of dismissive of uh, the need for organizing. And I, to me, it was just the question was organizing with this long-term goal ah. uh, in mind. So, so I think for what that what that meant specifically was I wanted to get really involved uh, in the anti-war movement. Okay. And in that process, I wanted to like help build socialist organization. I think that's what being a socialist meant was both sort of helping mass movements emerge and be as independent from the state and bosses as possible. And, and then also in that process to try to win people to an idea of radical change and to organize them with a perspective of uh, sort of the possibility for a socialist revolution and socialist future. I think that's what it meant to me. Mm -hmm. In practice, it meant mostly uh, getting involved in the anti-war movement, which um, was sort of still starting to pick up. And, you know, this was, I started college um, the end of 2002. So the push towards the invasion of Iraq was already well underway. And I went to UC Santa Cruz. Uh -huh. Um, which I knew had like a reputation for activism. Mm -hmm. And so I, I certainly was like very oriented towards like, this is what I'm going to do in college. It's going to be great. And, and, and this, what this, this activism, the, the activism. I, I think at the time I probably used that term activism. Okay. I'm going to get involved in activism. I'm going to like get way more involved and I'm going to try to help win people to socialism in the process. Okay. What did, what did you study at UC Santa Cruz? You know, initially, actually, I was going to be a lit major, and then I gave that up because I found the classes to be annoying. What do you mean you found the classes to be annoying? I know. Well, I love literature. I don't know. I, I think I found the fellow students to be annoying. <laughs> In what way, Eric? What do you mean by yeah. that? Santa Cruz had been uh, sort of a hippie college with a really low um, amount of rules. Mm -hmm. And then it 
got expanded like all of the UCs and, and dramatically scaled up. This is to say that I don't think it was well equipped to like uh, deal with the really large student, uh, the classroom size. Uh -huh. So it was in these classes and, and the teachers, I don't think like were able to pivot away from what used to work, which having really small group discussions about the text to uh, having big group discussions with a lot of people mm. in which it ended up being, in my experience with these classes, like uh, annoying dudes most of the time, just sort of like pontificating. Yeah. And I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't want to hear what they have to say. Like yeah. I was taking for me some of the enjoyment out of reading yeah. uh, and literature. So I, I, I switched to history, okay. which to me felt like I would learn something no matter what. And it was less um, conducive to having to like, just listen to classmates sort of BS uh, about things. But you're, but when you matriculated school, the, you didn't have one clear vision of like necessarily quote unquote what you wanted to do with yourself outside of like the activism. I think and I wanted to be a, the... I mean, honestly, I think that I thought job wise, maybe I would end up becoming like a high school history teacher ah, Okay. as a backup. But I honestly thought, you know, maybe I could swing it to be a full-time organizer. I this you. was already in my head. I, I'd met people like that. I had some sort of uh people like that in my life and i was like oh that's a good gig it's like this is the most important thing that could uh be this is the most important thing is like getting rid of capitalism and mm -hmm. so i want to spend as much time as i can doing that so if i can if i can do that full time yeah. why not and there was no pushback from your parents like your parents weren't like okay but we oh, really need an engine there definitely was pushback what I, did oh, they want why well, I almost dropped out of college. <gasps> yeah, I came very close to dropping out of college because when I was, uh, maybe I guess sophomore year, mm -hmm. I went to Bolivia. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was already like in more involved in the uh, sort of Trotskyist movement and, and socialist uh, internationalism. And I spoke different languages. So I got to go to Bolivia um, for a conference in support of the revolutionary process that was going on there. This was like how, before Evo Morales got elected. Ah. So there was a big struggle. Latin America at the time, this was like early pink tide. It was very exciting. Latin America played a big role, both for the reasons I explained earlier. And then also just a moment where like, you know, she was popping off. Yeah. And so I went to Bolivia at this conference and I was so excited that I, uh, I, I met all the organizers there. And I basically uh, stayed for a year organizing solidarity for the mine workers who mm -hmm. were the main Lithium. union. Was that? Lithium? Uh, there historically it was like tin was ah. the main thing mm -hmm. in, um, and th so they mined like hydrocarbons, like oh, different okay. types of, uh, gases and it, it, a lot, a lot of different, uh, by that time it was more varied, but basically I was working with this mine workers union to kind of like give international support. So I would translate things mm -hmm. and I, I got involved in some of their local organizing and I was like, Oh, this is great. There's like a revolution gone in Bolivia. Why would I ever go back to the United States? Or like things are lame in the United States. <laughs> Lame. you know uh things aren't like there's certainly not like a culture in which being a socialist was totally accepted you no, know that was just, that was so that was really amazing at the time latin america to me felt like my experience there was proof that things could be different ah. because i'd read about things being different but i never seen like a working class movement in which like i would go i went to the the office the head office of the main trade union federation in Bolivia, like the equivalent of the American AFL-CIO. And they had this big banner, the Central Obrera Boliviana, the Bolivian Workers Confederation. And it was like, they had a picture, it was their name, the big banner, and it was Marx, Lenin, 
Trotsky and Che. Nice. Like, and so I was just like, oh wow, you know, this is this is exciting. <laughs> this is where I belong. Yeah. So I was like, this is great. I was so it was it was amazing. So yeah. I, I stuck it out there for a year, and I was about I think I probably was gonna drop out of college, and my mom basically read me the riot act. <laughs> She's like, no, you're gonna come back and finish college. You can go back to Bolivia afterwards. That's right. But like you don't actually have a choice in this. You have to do this. Yeah. You have to come back. Uh -huh. It's totally insane. It's just, they're, they're like, you know, we saved up what we could uh, so you could do this. Yeah. You know, be irresponsible. She she, re she really read me the riot act. I think she also probably like class baited me a little bit. You know, she's, she's just like, it's so privileged to like oh. go to college and then drop it. Like, like you know, think who do about you all think the people. You are? Just like think about all the people who don't have that opportunity. Yeah. Like uh, you have to take advantage of that. Uh-huh. And so in hindsight, she was clearly right. Uh, my mom is a very smart woman. This is my dad. But my mom pushed really hard. Uh -huh. uh, and yes, yeah, so I came back um, to the States. What's that? Begrudgingly. Begrudgingly, yeah. Uh -huh. I came back to the States. And I think ultimately, I ended up going back to Bolivia, Bolivia afterwards. But, but eventually, Bolivian comrades convinced me that the most important place to be if you were, a American, if you were a socialist was in the country where you live. And so uh -huh. I got convinced that even though it was not particularly exciting and mm -hmm. sort of a slog mm -hmm. that being a socialist in the United States was actually where I could be most effective. And ultimately I, I had a conception, which I think is true that there's sort of an outsized weight and importance for being a lefty within the belly of the beast, you know, cause if you can say what you mean, say what you mean. Well, because the United States government has been, uh, you know, for many decades now, at the fore of defeating and crushing through violence oftentimes and uh, left movements throughout the rest of the world. So A, if you could fight here within the country, you could help prevent that from happening. But then also just as the most important capitalist country, if you could get rid of capitalism here, it would like the dominoes would fall very quickly in the rest of the world. Mm. So the responsibility of sort of leftist in the United States to me felt really high ah. and I got convinced that I should go back and stay and, and, and I that's what I've done since ah uh, okay but but going to Bolivia for that year and uh organizing that was a defining experience for you because it it, it reinforced your own priors with respect to like there is another way to yeah. organize workers in order to uh reorganize society on behalf of the working class yeah, and it seemed to confirm all of the things that I had read about as socialists. Like you had a mass working class movement. They'd mm -hmm. overthrown government. They overthrew the government in 2003 and mm -hmm. again in 2006. Mm -hmm. So like talking about the revolutionary potential of the working class uh, stopped being like seeming so abstract and seem more real. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. And you and you carry that with you like, okay, I've seen it. So now I'm going to yeah. go back home and, and perhaps figure out a way to like be a part of something similar yeah and i think that actually huh. getting more political in that sense becoming more of a marxist and, and actually traveling outside the united states for me i remember very distinctly coming back to the united states after that mm -hmm. and actually being much more sort of sympathetic to uh maybe working class americans huh. uh, outside of my san francisco bubble uh-huh because that, that punk rock condescending attitude that i had before that people were just brainwashed yeah gave way to i think a more sympathetic take which was well most people actually aren't brainwashed they most people are pretty smart but the uh conditions for organizing 
are hard. Most people don't fight back all the time because people are struggling to survive. People That's are right. trying to get by. Mm -hmm. uh, and if there's not real political alternatives sort of put forward in the political arena, well, of course, a lot of people aren't going to vote or they're just going to choose one of the lesser evils if nothing else is provided. Uh. And so I came away feeling more confident in the potentiality for American working people to change their views than I had before. Because okay. I'd seen mm -hmm. how humans could be different. And there's nothing like intrinsic about human nature in the United States that I think would preclude people from going in down a similar direction. Go back to the sympathy piece, though. Like what 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 brought that into focus specifically as a result of your time in Bolivia? I just there had to be something. I mean, the sympathy piece was and i don't mean sympathy in like a in a in a like a like a you know I, i'm staring down my nose at you you know you poor rubes type thing but i but i uh, there's something here yeah. that I, I mean i guess i just stopped looking at the u.s as a static entity in which people were sort of the way they were and it sucked mm. and i looked at it just more as like an organizing challenge and so ha! if you're if you're like an organizer then actually the responsibility is on you mm. and you don't you sort of stop blaming people you understand why uh -huh. they might not be taking actions the way why they might have voted or not voted uh in the way you wanted and you look at that responsibility as actually primarily based on you and your fellow organizers and organizations to set in motion a different dynamic so that ordinary people uh, could seize the opportunities uh, that were currently lacking. And I so from see. the second I looked at that, then I was like, oh yeah, people who disagree with me now, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether it's five, 10, 50 years, 100 years, uh, will come around mm -hmm. eventually. And mm -hmm. so you have to have confidence in people's ability to change. And, ah. and, and I, I probably had, if you had asked me, I might've said something along those lines, mm -hmm. but I don't think, uh, you know, before, college and Bolivia and things like that. But I, but I'm not sure I would have really fully uh, embraced that. And just to be clear, e even in college, it wasn't, it wasn't just like I went to Bolivia and changed my opinions there. I had also been really, really deeply involved in labor organizing throughout college. Mm -hmm. that Where, this was, with, with what? At UC Santa Cruz, uh -huh. I was a student worker, you know, so I, I, um, I paid for school through, uh, partly my folks had a little bit of money, but uh, but it was in state, so it wasn't as much. But then also I had to do work study. You know, that was part of the deal. Santa Cruz let me in, so I do work study. So I worked there, but the major thing I was doing was solidarity with the AFSME workers or like the service yeah. workers, like overwhelmingly, uh, you know, like Latina women, people like custodians uh, and janitors and, and sort of grounds crew. And they were fighting to unionize uh, some of the shops that they didn't have yet. They were fighting for a living wage. Uh, and then they had a strike my first year and then also my third year at, at college. Mm -hmm. And so I was like really, really, really deeply. I was like one of the lead organizers is for organizing students in solidarity with these workers. And, and so what I, did that involve? What's that? What did that entail or what did that involve? Well, we helped organize uh, students to walk out when the workers struck. So ah. we would have like mass walkouts of thousands of students. So like we shut down the campus. Nice. Even a video is even made by it's, it's pretty amazing. Santa Cruz is an easy campus to shut down because there's one entrance. Mm -hmm. So if you get enough students to block uh, the entrance, you can shut down the whole campus. Ah. So we got thousands of students to like sit down illegally at the entrance because mm -hmm. the workers couldn't risk doing that because they were worried about getting fired. Yeah. And so we shut down the campus. Um, and so I think the process that I described earlier about like getting more confidence in working people also just came out of that organizing experience. We saw 
I just I saw firsthand and I made a lot of really good friendships and relationships with, you know, ordinary working class people in the United States and winning and mm -hmm. feeling like, oh, my God, like we, we were able to win significant gains for these workers ah. at, at the UCs and at UC Santa Cruz. You know, there's no reason why this couldn't happen everywhere. Ah, and so that so I think it was reading it was Latin America, but then it was just like actual experience with the labor movement uh, and to give us deeper sense of kind of confidence in working people's abilities and capacities. When you came to the end of college, like did your did your your thinking about, you know, professionally becoming a history teacher had that been altered a bit? Like were you were you still thinking, you know, like, you know, my biggest impact in terms of a revolutionary change is maybe, you know, being a full time labor organizer or you know what? What was the what were you, what was your thinking? Yeah, I was uh I think probably at that time my thinking was I can I graduated from college uh, and so I can become a high school history teacher yeah like that would be my backup uh -huh. and in the meantime I'm gonna try to survive as long as I can through a variety of odd jobs okay. um, like what oh I did a lot of different things I, I bartended I was a I was a um, cater caterer mm. I, I ended up working on the Oakland docks uh, no. for two years. Yeah, it's about like on call. So I would work the graveyard shift driving the bus ah. from uh, the boats essentially to the parking lot and I would drive the workers there. So I was not ah. like operating heavy machinery. You were was, ILW. Yeah, I was ILW. Oh, yeah. you were a part of... When you start off, you're not a member of the union yet. So it takes like five, ten years of basically like getting enough hours. Ah, it's a very complicated you. process. But yeah, at that time I thought, well, maybe yeah, there was a couple years where I thought if I stick with this, mm -hmm. then yeah, I can be like uh, a dock worker period because ah. that's a great union and so I thought of sticking with that. that the difficulty was it was very hard to organize during the day and then do the graveyard shift at night yeah you have no, to cause, sleep yeah because I would have to work the shift that no one else wanted to work and you're on call it was very stressful to be on call yeah. at any point you know because you can't have any life uh -huh. essentially because you have to you know if you want to ever get the job you have to just be available be available and that sucked yeah um, I started substitute teaching so I had back in San Francisco yeah, uh, in San Francisco and in East Bay. Mm -hmm. So I had all these odd jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, but the basic criteria for the jobs for me was um, what would give me enough flexibility so I could organize. Ah, so okay. I was basically functioning as like a full-time organizer around immigrant rights um, struggles at this time. Uh, this was like 2006. There was a really massive um, upsurge in immigrant rights. And so I helped organize like a bunch of student walkouts uh, in San Francisco hmm. against the kind of racist Republican bill that we ended up defeating. Nice. And so I was doing that and being a full-time sort of socialist too. I was, you know, building a small socialist organization mm -hmm. and trying to recruit young people to socialism. Uh, I was very involved in anti-war activity still. So I was just doing a lot. I was sort of like running around like crazy. And then by the end of the 2000s, the big struggle uh, became the fight kind of against austerity uh, in defense of public education uh -huh. in California. In the wake of 2008? Yeah, in the uh -huh. wake of the Great Recession, uh -huh. there's just these massive budget cuts uh -huh. um, and pushes to privatize um, schools and to raise tuition. And so for about maybe four or five years, I was just like all in as an organizer around public education. Uh -huh. Uh, in California. Also, by this time, I was working as a teacher in the East Bay. Uh -huh. um, and so I was also trying to organize at work. And so my... Yeah. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, so, my, so I transitioned uh, towards 
getting as involved as I could in the public education struggle around this time too. How so how many years are we talking where you're like you're hustling with all these different jobs, you're you're organizing yeah. and like what is this? It all gets muddy. I graduated <laughs> college in like early 2006. Uh-huh. So these are the years. This is basically like broad strokes 2006 to when did I come to New York? I came to New York in 2016. 2017. So it's about 10 years. It's like basically 10 years after college uh -huh. of organizing in San Francisco and then the East Bay because I couldn't afford to live in San Francisco. Of course. And I, part of the reason I was able to organize so much at first is I, I went back, I moved back in with my parents because yeah. I was like, well, if I don't have to pay rent, then I can organize more. Yeah. And that lasted like maybe a year or two. And then my mom was like, no, you have to get a real job. <laughs> like, I'm not going to subsidize you right. uh, organizing. And she was always like very strong on me going and like getting a real job. Sure. And was always like uh, skeptical of my plan to try to be a full time revolutionary, essentially. So she's a wise, <laughs> she's a wise lady. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then I moved to the East Bay and East Bay was maybe more like eight years uh -huh. of organizing more around public education as uh -huh. I got more involved in uh, that struggle, and then be became a teacher. Mm. What were were there any um, victories or wins that you? Yeah, it was you a huge notched? struggle. People don't talk about it as much, but California in particular it was just like very explosive. We had a really significant mass movement uh, from 2008 through 2012. Uh -huh. um, for instance, we defeated multiple tuition hikes in the UCs, where uh -huh. they, you know. We organized mass student strikes. Uh, there was a lot of clashes with the police. There was a lot of occupations of buildings. Um, we also were able to generate, you know, billions of dollars in state funding. I was a lead organizer in the um, a campaign for what was called the Millionaires Tax ah. in California mm -hmm. to basically tax the rich to pay for education and social services. Yeah, and. Uh, we mostly won that struggle and ended up getting incorporated into like a somewhat more moderate bill uh, that the governor passed. But, you know, they, we, we generated, you know, a huge amount of money for the schools that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Mm -hmm. And then the big win of my sort of public education organizing period was I spent three years and this was the main thing I did before I moved to New York involved in the struggle to save City College. Ah, yes. And so, yeah, so I was a lead organizer in that. Uh -huh. I was like all in for three years. Whoa. Um, for listeners who don't know, City College of San Francisco is a massive institution. It's like almost at that time I had over 100,000 students, mm -hmm. just like this working class institution. It's like a bastion of old San Francisco, yep. as opposed to Yepi San Francisco, you know, but overwhelmingly uh, students of color, you know, had a lot of ESL. It, it's really amazing, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful school. I, I loved it. Yep. Um, and the, it got threatened by accreditors with getting completely shut down yep. as kind of the drive to privatize education. And so from the second that threat kind of came out of nowhere, I dove in sort of head over feet uh, into this struggle. And it was my main sort of, it was my life for about three years. And we won, we, we saved the school. Mm -hmm. Uh, through a lot of through strikes and through protests and through we occupied City Hall. We got arrested a lot. We did a lot of civil disobedience. Whoa. We worked really closely, uh, you know, with, with the different unions on campus. It was really it was a really a very impressive uh, victory. Someone actually just wrote a book on it called mm -hmm. Free City. So people can look it up. It was like a major struggle that didn't capture as much national attention as maybe it would now with uh, social media. This was like pre social media still. Mm -hmm. And 
yeah, so we won. And that made me feel good about San Francisco, actually, about the possibility of kind of keeping it from getting fully gentrified. That was really the terms of the struggle around City College was, is this going to be a, a city where working class communities of color and working class communities just generally can stay? Or is it going to be a white gentrified you know, playground for the ultra rich? Mm -hmm. Is that po is the did the the did the struggle and subsequent uh wins around uh city college and saving city college which is an, a very beautiful institution um did that did the possibility did the possibility i'm tongue-tied right now uh did is that what propelled you forward and gave you kind of uh uh, uh the push you needed in order to like uh get back into school and, and, and continue your studies? No, I don't think so. If anything, it probably cut against it, which is to say that like, there's nothing like winning a significant struggle to make you feel like the most meaningful thing in life is organizing. Yeah. I always felt actually a tension going back to school because I knew that it was going to entail uh, maybe being less it, it, like being a little bit less involved as full-time organizer. Uh, uh. So I was always reluctant to, to go to school for that reason. Mm -hmm. I think the reason I went to school was um, partly just I realized at a certain point I needed to actually have a profession. I, I was teaching high school, but it didn't feel sustainable to me, both mm -hmm. like money-wise and just, I don't know. I, I, by that time, I had been teaching for many years and... It was just a grind. I don't know. I got burnt out. Like I lasted longer. I, I think, you know, just to be honest, it was really, it's just exhausting being a teacher. Sure. And it was exhausting trying to do that and organize at the same time. Of course. And so I realized that I could continue organizing um, and continue uh, or really start to write more, which I was starting to do uh, mm -hmm. by going to grad school. So I could continue to organize and then also do another thing I liked, which was writing, mm -hmm. which, um, and I didn't think I could just have enough time in the day mm -hmm. to both teach high school be an organizer and start to write no so i had to cut out one of those things so the thing i cut out was uh being a high school teacher okay because the organizing you couldn't let go of because you're still yeah i, could, yeah, I didn't want to let go of the organizing yeah. but i needed to, I, but i realized at this point it's getting a little older i was like yeah i guess i i guess my mom's right i probably do need like <laughs> some sort of because I, I think at that time i i would have stayed I think it really, I was still hoping to be at some point become like a full-time organizer. Mm -hmm. And that seemed less and less um, like a real possibility. But, but as I got a little older, mm -hmm. I was like, oh no, I'm, no one's paying me full-time to be an organizer. Sure, sure. So I probably uh, need to come up with a different plan. Ah, okay. And writing started to light you up. Why? I think that was, I became a real nerd from like college onwards. And so I, I became like a deep, deep, deep history nerd. And, and this is connected to being a socialist. I, I think that, you know, if, if you're gonna spend all of your time trying to change the world, I think it's important to take seriously what has worked in the past and what hasn't worked and to try to base your sort of practice accordingly. That was definitely like why I, got interested in history in the first place mm -hmm. that was the you know I, I got it because of politics and i read a lot of socialist history and labor history and i just wanted to see what worked um and so i started that kind of like nerdery in college <laughs> good nerdery. um and i think i was i think i was pretty good at it and 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 i started as an organizer to write more you know th that's one of the nice things about being part of a 
maybe a socialist organization too, is you get chances to kind of develop yourself, not just as an activist, but I, I got a chance to write. I was writing for like different small left publications. And I started a project of reading more about like anti-racist struggles in, in the Russian revolution because the Russian revolution loomed really large for the political kind of tradition that I was part of at the time. Why? Because the conception was that the Russian revolution provided a model for what revolutions uh, everywhere in the world would look like. So you really wanted to study the Russian revolution because this is the one place where they overthrew capitalism, the workers yeah. took power. And so you want to learn basically like how they built a revolutionary party like the Bolshevik. And you wanted to try to replicate that. That was the, that was the assumption I had at the time. Mm -hmm. And so like you would, we, it was a deep, intense engagement with the Russian revolution uh, because of that. And because I was also an anti-racist activist in the United States, I thought it was interesting to try to look at like basically how they fought racism and national oppression in the Russian empire. Mm -hmm. um, and these debates would get brought up because people were looking at Russia and if you're socialist, then people were talking about, well, this is what's different or the same about the United States. And that, it was actually like that project which sent me down this whole other trajectory that ended up landing me in grad school because I started reading everything I could on sort of the oppressed peoples of the Russian empire. Ah. Um, this was before grad school. And I, I'm good with languages. I grew up speaking a lot of different languages and I, I pick up languages easily. And so I started teaching myself uh, enough just like uh, of these other languages to read texts that I couldn't because at a certain point I read everything that was in English. Uh -huh. And but there's not that much in English. Sure. So I started teaching myself some like Eastern European languages Whoa. so that I could uh, read about these really fantastically important movements um, of oppressed socialists, essentially, in the Russian Empire. And I realized nobody had like written the book on this history. Mm -hmm. and so that's uh, essentially that's what got me into grad school. Is I, I had this big project in my head. I was like, oh, I can write the history of the Russian Revolution uh, amongst the like oppressed peoples in the empire because nobody has really written that. Uh -huh. um, in the hopes that like being able to make that accessible to uh, an English speaking or American audience would uh, help help people have a, uh, a better understanding of another kind of revolutionary histories that could be applied maybe perhaps here. Yeah, I think my thinking was uh, like they, they won in Russia and they, they were able, this is how I thought at the time, mm -hmm. maybe still agree with mostly, they, they were able to figure out a way to uh, combine struggles like for working class people with specific struggles around like what we would now call anti-racism. Mm -hmm. You know, they used a different language, but basically fighting against uh, structural inequalities for different oppressed groups and uh, a very similar type dynamics. If you think about like the oppression of Jews or uh, sort of dominated groups like Poles, my thinking was that that was going to have all sorts of interesting lessons for anti-racist socialist struggle in the United States. Can I, can I, can we, can we park right there for a second? What was, why was it important for you to be involved in anti-racist socialist struggles here? And what did that mean to you at the time? Yeah. So, the political tradition I was part of uh, took black liberation really centrally. It, it, it took it really as, an, as a centrally important part of class struggle in the United Why? States. Because um, a huge reason why capitalism has been able to develop and survive in the way it has in the United States is by 
both oppressing black people for like the economic foundation of this country's slavery, and then also keeping working class people divided through racism and white supremacy. And so the, the understanding that I was trained in was that unless uh, you can find ways to overcome basically the racism within the working class and to support black liberation struggles, you're never gonna be able to get to socialism. You're never gonna be able to get uh, towards working class power because mm -hmm. your side's gonna be too divided uh, and so you need to take this on centrally. You can't just sort of like ignore it or hope it'll uh, get resolved just through the general labor struggle. You have to have like a really particular orientation towards supporting anti-racism, supporting black liberation. Can I ask like you that. a question? Because yeah. I think that's I think that's an important point that um, I mean, this is like a perennial argument and, you know, whatever people shout at me but can you can you say more about the piece around like you can't just hope that these like you know the 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 racism question won't get resolved through just general kind of like you know uh maturation of the labor movement can you can you yeah. say more about that because people like miss that or or like hop over it and i think yeah. that that's like happens too often so yeah i mean i think um at the time, and I still basically agree with that, my understanding was that because of the depth of sort of structural racism and the depth of segregation and the depth of inequality within the working class, mm -hmm. that you just wouldn't be able to get this type of class movement mm -hmm. unless you were able to, for instance, fight for affirmative action, if, unless you were we're going to fight around police brutality types of issues that are potentially controversial. Does reparations play into that at all? What's that? In your conception? In my current conception or the conception at the time? Yeah, I think it was part of it. I supported reparations. I support reparations. Yeah, it was part of it. it, was, mm -hmm. it the, the idea is that basically U.S. capital developed uh, by decimating indigenous peoples and enslaving black people. So that like question of black struggles, like central to the revolutionary struggle in the ah. United States. Mm -hmm. This was the idea. And so uh, because... And this has to do with also like lessons from the 60s. And I think the assumption was, um, or maybe the lessons learned from the 60s was like, look how central black struggle was at this time for leading overall movements and for inspiring other people to fight back. And so rather than downplaying struggles for black liberation, you could see how that could be a boon towards a broader struggles and broader ah. coalitions. So the question was like, how do you combine autonomous struggles of oppressed groups with you know, trying to unite those because I was still a Marxist and I still thought like ultimately yes. unless you united different groups, you weren't going to be able to uh, get where you needed to go. Mm -hmm. But the, you know, the idea was essentially you need to have some sort of combined struggle where ah. you would try to unite as many people as you could, but you would also have to have autonomous struggles specifically against racism mm -hmm. um, and, you know, including like supporting, you know, independent movements of different dominated groups, you know, so there needed to be like autonomous organization, things like that. I, I gotcha. That was what I believed. I, I still mostly believe that to be true. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and that's why I got interested in Russia to think about, well, it seems like they went further than we have in the United States ah. in achieving that. You know, it's like we talk about it in the United States, sure. but uh, like combining race and class is, is like, extremely difficult. Yeah. And so because it's such a central debate, if you're on the left, it, even at the time, mm -hmm. you know, think, feel like even more so now, mm -hmm. I felt like, okay, well, maybe there's a model we could use towards learning some of these lessons. Ah. Okay, thank you for that digression because yeah, uh, it makes my head hurt, and I don't have the language for why that's so frustrating to get people to understand. Like being 
for example, being an advocate for uh, reparations for uh, for black people, for Africans in America and other places, that's not orthogonal to a, the, the socialist cause. And it, it actually has to be, you have to countenance it. And one would hope uh, struggle and organize around it in order to like, like you said, kind of bring those two things together and so that these divides are overcome and we can all march forward together. I don't yeah, know. I think that's right. Very frustrating. Anyway, that's just wanted, I just wanted to hear you language it and, and that is helping me understand why I get so frustrated. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, okay. So you're, so you, you got deep into, you got deep into like uh, the history of the Re Russian Revolution, and because you're a super nerd, you start teaching yourself <coughs> many new languages so that you could continue like understanding the, those histories of um, uh, of not of both the revolution and how they overcame. It's not the same, but how they overcame like racism or racism's discrimination within the Russian Empire, um, in order to kind of collate that history and bring it. Uh, not bring it, but uh, collate the history and present it uh, anew to, you know, English-speaking American audiences, so that there could be lessons learned from uh, that socialist struggle and that that overcoming of capitalism. Um, but uh, and that that became like a central focus of yours. And and what else did started coming into view more as you were exploring? I guess history uh, as you went back to school yeah so i i decided to go to grad school so i could do this project i at the same time was starting to like i wrote an article for jacobin at yeah. this time and i was lucky enough to have like uh, friends who introduced me to Bhaskar sankara who's the editor and he turned out to be like a really nice guy who also really liked baseball. <laughs> so we kind of like hit it off yeah. and nerded it up. Um, and and he was very encouraging, uh, you know, because this this type of history could be feel kind of obscure. But the sort of I ended up going to New York partly because I Jacobin was just like starting to be a thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign had just happened in 2016. It was mm -hmm. sort of in the wake of this. Mm -hmm. And that was starting to uh, maybe shift some of my views. I had been of the view that the Democratic Party, uh, like basically socialists should never support any candidate who's running mm -hmm. with the Democrats. So like I didn't think it made, I, I, like I liked Bernie, but in 2016, I thought he should have run as an independent. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that was the organization I was part of line. That being said, at the time, even then, and I think this is what led me down a different trajectory, I was extremely excited about Bernie. Yeah. I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. You know, he's like talking about socialism with millions of people. This is this huge opportunity. Yeah. It's going to change American politics. And some of my other comrades at the time felt like, actually, no, Bernie's main role was to like sheepdog yeah. <laughs> people into the Democratic Party. And I just didn't see that happening. I, I, I said, sure, you know, there's dangers of that. But like the main trajectory is getting a lot more people involved in politics and including sending them uh, on an antagonistic course with the Democratic Party That's establishment. Right. That's right. And so it was kind of it, all at the same time. I decided to go to grad school. Jackman was based out of New York. I wanted to go to New York. I was mm -hmm. kind of like feeling done with the Bay Area, mm. honestly, just for sort of uh, partly because the Bay Area at the time was already fraught with all of the problems it is now. Yeah. 
uh, it but was, that you didn't see that as an opportunity to stay and dig your heels. I did. In? I'd been organizing. I mean, I did. I, I, I just spent three or four years uh, organizing around City College in San Francisco. So I didn't think it was like over. Mm -hmm. um, but but you were over it. Yeah, I felt like other people <laughs> can do the struggle, and I felt pretty ambivalent about it. To be honest, like huh. I was ambivalent about going to grad school because I didn't want to like. I didn't want to, I don't know, sell out, I think. Mm. I, I thought I saw not being a full-time organizer, not being like a full-time rank-and-file union worker as uh, sort of a dereliction of my duties as a, ah. as a socialist and as like a working-class person. I, I saw, to me, like going to grad school, this is not something that had been on my trajectory. I was always annoyed by grad student leftists <laughs> as an organizer. They tend to, in my impression, in my experience at Santa Cruz and Berkeley, Sometimes they were good. I don't want to like too broad a brush, but there was like oftentimes a tendency to like talk more than to organize mm. and to like not know how to uh, really like connect with people outside of your own small academic bubble. So I was like pretty skeptical that that milieu. But the Bay Area, I like I was living in Oakland. I think that's part of it. I, I couldn't afford to live in San Francisco anymore. I was living in Oakland, mm -hmm. and me moving to Oakland, even as poor as I was was still sort of like a part of the process of gentrification which was weird because in San Francisco I had been very much like felt part of like the aggrieved subject even though I was yeah. white I was just like I don't know me and my friends were public school kids we didn't like the outsiders yeah I felt a sense of belonging and then in Oakland I didn't have that same level of connection mm. and so I was just kind of like ready for a new start sure um so I went to NYU for sociology mm -hmm. uh starting in 2017 and part of that was kind of wanting to be closer to the jacobin folks okay uh and to be part of something like more exciting mm -hmm. that seemed new which yeah. which was uh not something that was as based in the bay area the, the, the exciting part of the u.s left seemed to be more and more uh in new york at this time mm -hmm. exciting in what way well, there's like a new socialist movement, Jacobin in particular, and DSA was sort of starting to explode in size. Mm -hmm. So there's like large numbers of people for the U.S., certainly uh, unprecedented in decades, getting interested in socialism. And I, and I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to kind of connect with that. And maybe just because Jacobin happened to be based in New York, mm -hmm. uh, that's where I went. A move to New York to be closer to the socialist action. A tale as old as time. <laughs> and just in the nick of time, too. Eric had barely gotten situated in New York before the West Virginia teacher strike popped off. And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> Join us on Patreon for part two of how and why Eric morphed into a writer of covering labor history, past and present. Part two is up right now on patreon.com slash what's left to do. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's left to do. If Patreon isn't your thing and you'd still like to support this work, you can go to whatsleftodo.com slash support and leave us a donation in the tip jar. Okay, see you over on Patreon. Patreon.